You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. This podcast is sponsored by Receptiva DX. Receptiva DX is a powerful test that can help detect inflammatory conditions on the uterine lining that might be preventing you from becoming pregnant or staying pregnant. If you've experienced implantation failure or multiple miscarriages, ask your doctor about Receptiva DX. Uterine inflammation, if found, can be treated, providing a new pathway to achieving a successful pregnancy. Receptiva DX, because the journey's worth it. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Susan Hudson with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. And I'm here with my amazing co-host, Dr. Carrie Vediant from Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hey. And Dr. Abby Evelyn from Nashville Fertility Center. Hi, everybody. Great to be here today. How are you guys doing today? Doing great. So, so Carrie... You were you were mentioning something about a very interesting blue camo-ish <laughs> furry vest earlier. Can can you share with our listeners a little bit about this item du jour? So shopping in Vegas is uh like none other. I mean, you can go down <laughs> to the strips and you've got like high end after high end after high end after high end store next to the exact opposite of that and everything in between. And so I was out at dinner um with a couple of our friends and we decided to just go window shopping afterwards. So we walk by this one shop that has a really it's a horribly offensive name not swear words or anything, just how the hell does anybody, particularly any white person, name a shop like that? So we're looking in and it's got a lot of like Western wear in it. And my friend points it out to me and she's like, how much do you think that that vest costs? And she's pointing to something that I would expect to find in like a secondhand shop and (laughs) it's, or one of the cheapo, like, fashion of the day kind of shops where everything is, you know, under a hundred bucks. And it's this blue, black and white kind of in a camo pattern. And it's like cobalt blue. It is not a subtle navy or anything like that. No, no. It is bright ass blue. And it's in a camo pattern almost. And it's furry, right? And it's furry. It's like furry, furry, like in like shag carpet kind of furry or? No, think like fur coat, super soft fake, looking fur. Fake fur. Okay. Fake fur. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So she, so she says like, how much do you think it is? I'm like, oh, it's like, I don't know, 40 to 80 bucks. And she's like, no, no, it's 4,000. <laughs> so you can try it on? You try it on? No, thankfully the, the store was closed because I'm not uh. sure we could have been trusted to be adult-like in, in the shop. <laughs> ridiculous things that it had. But she sent me a follow-up today because she was, you know, going, going, looking through uh, another very high-end store. And she sent me a picture of the same vest and a picture of the price tag. And I looked at him like, oh, $11. Yeah, that seems about right. No, no, it was $11,000. That is unbelievable. I cannot even fathom paying that kind of price for an ugly vest. I can't imagine paying $11,000 for almost any piece of clothing ever. I I mean, like, yeah, clothing, no. (laughs) I can't. 
I mean, besides, like, the only thing I can think of that I own besides my house and my car that's that expensive, maybe my engagement ring. I don't know. I never asked. I can't imagine buying anything. Yeah. That's, that's crazy. And, and for those of us who have seen a picture of <laughs> ridiculous vest, it is pretty darn ugly. I mean, the idea of spending that much. So like, Carrie, was this like a famous designer or something? I mean, it had to be because do you know who it was or who the... Um, I will put pull up the picture it didn't have i really want to know now i'm gonna like try and look that up myself because it was so ugly when you showed us the picture gorski montreal sounds like a hockey player it It does does. it's actually the name of one of the mfms here in town maybe she's a secret designer maybe so don't offend your mfm colleagues though (laughs) maybe maybe you could get it for like you know like ten thousand dollars instead of eleven or something if she's really the designer you know Ooh, big discount. I can look hot at our next conference. <laughs> you two will, will be jealous to be seen next to me. I, I There are no words, Carrie. There are no words. <laughs> Just you wait. I'll, I'll show up to the next conference we're going to in a few weeks, and I will be impressed to impress. <laughs> Maybe you could do some sort of DIY vest or something and, and come to when we're going to Utah next week. I I imagine that I could. I could go buy some spray paint and probably get the same type of effect. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's go over our question of the day. So our question for today is, hello, love your podcast. It has brought me a lot of comfort. My question is about getting pregnant after 10 years of being on birth control pill. Consulting Dr. Google results in a wide variety of answers. Some say you can get pregnant on your next cycle after getting off the pill. Others, including my mom's, say they purposefully got off the pill a good six months before trying to conceive. I'm 30, my husband's 32, and we've been trying for eight months. Well, eight months trying, eight months off the pill. I've been tracking my cycles since we were started trying, and they seem very normal, consistent 32 days. Past two months, I've used OPKs and got a dark line to indicate ovulation around day 18. I also noticed very clear egg white discharge and cramping around ovulation. I'm not 100% sure, but I don't recall such clear ovulation symptoms the first few months of us trying getting off the pill. After a year of trying, we will want to seek help from a fertility specialist. At this point, is it accurate to say that we have been trying for eight months, or is it actually less considering the potential time it takes to get birth control out of the system? Great question. That is a good question. It sounds like certainly at some point she's getting regular periods. Did she ever say, I when went they started back the yeah. month, I, I started cycling again, like had a menstrual period? I don't think she did. I think she's been every 32 days since she got off the pill. It was just she didn't notice as strong ovulation-y type symptoms. Mm-hmm. She didn't remember the strong ovulation type symptoms from before? No, no, no. Just the first few months after the pill. She didn't notice as much egg white discharge and But it's all been, periods sound like they've time. been pretty regular periods since have been she regular from what I understand. Yeah. Okay. I mean, my opinion, there was some good studies done probably about 10 or 15 years ago now that actually show that your best chances of conceiving are actually in the first few months after getting off the birth control pill. It's a little like super surge of fertility for a few months. Mm -hmm. So I would not discount that time period. Everybody's different, but when the clock's ticking, the clock is ticking. And also, also, also most importantly, realize that when we start talking about that year of trying to conceive, and this isn't necessarily people just getting off the pill, remember, if you are not taking something to prevent pregnancy, you are trying, okay? So that mm-hmm. counts. So, you know, not like paying attention to when you pee on sticks or when we're having sex or any of that. 
that honestly doesn't matter in the definition of fertility or infertility. Mm -hmm. So if you are having unprotected intercourse, those months count. Yeah. I mean, you could argue that maybe the first month or two, maybe her lining was a little bit on the thin side, but I agree with you. I mean, basically eight months is a pretty significant amount of time. I mean, the good news is you don't truly meet the criteria of infertility. You know, I think it would be worthwhile. You're 30. Generally, we say if you're 35 or older, you should seek fertility treatment after six months when you've not been preventing pregnancy. I think you're doing all the right things, but I think sooner rather than later, you may want to head over to the fertility doctor's office just so they can kind of check some things out. You mm-hmm. don't necessarily have to start treatment, but they could certainly check your husband's sperm count, check and see if your tubes are open and kind of just really check to make sure you're really ovulating every month. Nerd alert, um, writing a lecture on secondary infertility or amenorrhea or whatever I was writing the lecture on, I was going through the gold, gold standard spear off um, to make sure yep. I was pulling everything. And they they commented very specifically that by the time you get to six months after having a birth control pill, when you stopped it, if you're six months after stopping the pill, if you don't have a period yet, then you can no longer blame it on the birth control pill. So mm. by the time you start resuming your cycles, you can fairly reliably say that you're ovulating. Um, And it said that the majority of people return to ovulation within the first two to three months. And that as long as you're getting your cycles, it's, it's pretty reliable. Very good. Very good. Well, let's kind of jump into our subject for today. So today we are going to talk a little bit about what to do to prepare yourself for an IVF cycle. You know, you've decided, hey, I'm thinking about doing IVF. And we're, we're going to, you know, jump into this feet first. So Carrie, if I'm thinking about doing IVF, what are some of the first few things that I should do? Maybe even before I go to the doctor. So this answer is in part precipitated by the week that I have just had, but um, <laughs> fertility is very stressful. Find yourself a therapist and that therapist preferably has a, you know, a degree and some training in that, but can also be found in, you know, religious figures that you appreciate in your community. Um, you know, really good friends who have the aptitude for that, whatever, whoever it may be, you need to find an outlet because it's a roller coaster. I was about to say it's kind of a roller coaster. No, no, we're not going to mitigate it. It's a roller coaster. coaster. And so one of the things that I would say you need to do is shore up your mental health because this is going to be trying and let's get you in the best place that you need to be, whether that is on specific medications, tell them you want to get pregnant and keep that in mind. But there's a lot of medications that you can be on, have a counselor in your back pocket, have all your coping uh, mechanisms lined up and ready to go because this is a tough process. And, you know, your doctor and their office are hopefully going to be really supportive as is a significant other. But um, please don't do this alone because it's tough. And that ends my soapbox and PSA from this last week. (laughs) So Abby, what are some other things that you can do at home even before you go see your doctor? Well, I think you want to get yourself in the position where you're as healthy as you possibly can be. And I think, you know, if you're on medications, um, particularly if you're not sure if they're compatible with pregnancy, you don't want to do that after you get pregnant or while you're in the middle of an IVF cycle. So probably want to talk to your primary care doctor if you're on, for example, high blood pressure medicine. You want to make sure that the medicine that you're on is a medicine that's compatible with pregnancy. Weight is is an important one. If you're heavy, the more weight you lose, you know, the healthier you're going to be for pregnancy. So, you know, you have a higher risk of diabetes, higher risk of C-section, um, 
higher risk of really all complications with pregnancy if you're heavy. And so the more weight you can lose, you know, you don't want to be underweight, but the more weight you can lose and get close to a normal body weight, that will be really helpful. It also help your doctors with the egg retrieval. They'll be able to see better if, if you're not as heavy. Um, and really any other medical condition, things like rheumatoid arthritis, Crohn's disease, things that are like autoimmune conditions, you really want to make sure that you're stable in those, you're on stable medicines, and that your doctor knows that you're trying to get pregnant um, so that we'll know that the medicines are compatible with, with pregnancy. I think that's a really, really important point, Abby, is I have a lot of people who come in and, you know, they may not have seen, they have chronic illness, but they may not have seen somebody for two, three years um, to figure out, you know, are they actually stable? Are are they in the best shape they can be in? And most importantly, are they on medicines that are consistent with pregnancy? Mm-hmm. A lot of times I'll get the, oh, I've been to my doctor, but they said, just let me know when you're pregnant and we'll switch you over. Yeah. And as as reproductive <laughs> we endocrinologists, like <laughs> we don't like that. We want you to be on what you're going to be on. Okay. You've got enough roller coasters in the beginning of pregnancy. We don't need to be changing your anti-depression mm-hmm. or anti-anxiety medicine or your, your medicine for your inflammatory bowel disease. Like we want you super duper as healthy as you can be. We understand there's limits to what everybody can do. We really want to have all those eyes dotted and T's crossed to make the process smooth for you. Well, and the one other medical condition too that I meant to mention is diabetes. We mm-hmm. really, really want to make sure that's under good control. We know that if it's under good control, your risk of having a baby with some sort of malformation is really no different than the general population. Um, so we look at the hemoglobin A1C number. We really would like that to be under six and really even lower would be better. But that tells us that you're in a place where your risk is no greater than the general population for having a a bad outcome with your child. And, you know, I think a lot of people get kind of frustrated with us. Sometimes I'll kind of joke and go, hey, don't shoot the messenger. I'm sorry. Um, But, you know, I have a patient that's having trouble getting her rheumatoid arthritis under control and she's kind of really upset that we can't get going. And I have another patient who's having trouble getting her hemoglobin A1C in the right range. And, you know, it's it's not nothing punitive toward you. We just want to make sure that you have a really healthy pregnancy. And that's why we really kind of set those rules. So another thing that you can do before you ever go see the doctor is check what all of your habits are and be very clear with yourself in terms of how much do I actually drink every week? And not just, oh, I just pour myself one glass of wine, but think about it in terms of if you break that down to a four or five ounce glass, how many of those are you drinking? Um, Same with alcohol, same with beer. We get a lot of people where we ask, oh, how much do you drink? And they go, oh, I'm just a social drinker. That can mean anything from once a year at Thanksgiving to uh, a 12 pack every weekend. Mm -hmm. Uh, in one sitting. And so be very clear with yourself. What are you actually drinking? If you are using any tobacco related products, and so this is cigarettes, obviously, they include cigars, it includes nicotine patches, it includes vaping, cigarettes, dipping, Dipping. chew, all of that stuff. (laughs) Texas and Tennessee, we have a lot of marijuana. And yeah. marijuana. marijuana and all of the other substances that that you can find legal or illegal, depending on where you live. All of those things need to go. Now, if you're going to put a priority on it, I usually put the tobacco adjacent products top of my hit list because um, I was having a conversation with my andrologist because we were talking about a patient of mine who was not not currently using drugs, but had a, a history of you know, using hard drugs, hard alcohol for many years, have been sober for five, six years by this point. And they said, you know what, we've never really noticed anything to those, but we can, if you give us sperm from a smoker, 
we can tell. We don't need any any advanced knowledge. They can look at it and go, oh yeah, huh. we, know, we know the habits of that person. It can definitely affect male fertility. It can inf- affect uh, female infertility as well. Those eggs are bathed in follicular fluid, particularly as they're growing. Anything that you are putting in your body has the potential to go into that that follicular fluid. There have been studies done that show that some of the byproducts of nicotine. all this tobacco, nicotine, mm-hmm. crap, um, is... They're bathing your fluid. eggs. So mm-hmm. if you would not put your newborn baby in cigarette water, um, <laughs> don't do it to your eggs either. <laughs> So all of, carry. <laughs> all of those habits, you know, you, you got to kind of be clear with yourself and look at them and go, all right, you know, because you most of the time you don't need a physician to tell you, you probably shouldn't do that. If you actually write it down and are clear about it, most people are like, yeah, I, I know, I know what I should do. Right. Don't and, make this a bad guy. And, and kind of on, on the positive notes of positive things you can additionally be doing, make sure you're taking those prenatal vitamins. I'm always amazed at how many people come in to see us that aren't on prenatal vitamins. Yes. It's it's important. I mean, the recommendation is for you to be on them, ideally, for two to three months prior to conceiving. Um Vitamin D, most people are vitamin D deficient. If you have irregular periods, get on some vitamin D as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, those are the, those are some important things that we definitely see positive outcomes. Um, other supplements that you might recommend going into IVF, depending on certain situations? Well, coenzyme Q10, as you guys know, there's not a lot of data on, on supplements just in general, but coenzyme Q10 is one of those that may have biologic plausibility, meaning there may be a reason why it might be helpful, although we don't, the data doesn't back it up just yet. But coenzyme Q10 may help with cell division. It may help the powerhouse of the cell, the mitochondria, and help with cell division. The most important cell in the female body is the egg cell. And so right when it gets that trigger to be released or to be ovulated or the trigger right before we do IVF, the egg cell all of a sudden has to divide in two. And so we think that maybe coenzyme Q10 may be helpful in that regard. So generally, you know, particularly for my older patients over 35, I think it's not a bad idea to try taking coenzyme Q10. The studies that have been done usually recommend a dose of 600 milligrams of CoQ10 or uh, 400 milligrams of ubiquinone. Carrie, anything supplement-wise you recommend? For my PCOS patients or ovulatory disorder patients, I often will tell them to take myo-inositol. Mm-hmm. Myo-inositol is a little bit different than decairo-inositol. So when if you're in the drugstore looking for it, make sure you've got myo-myo instead of the decairo. There's some data that's suggestive it can be helpful in PCOS patients, and I will take every advantage I can get. <laughs> so I will oftentimes have people start that. Yeah, and I'll often use DHEA in people with diminished ovarian reserve, about 25 milligrams three times a day. And again, especially for that and the CoQ10, again, the longer you're on it, the better off you are. So once you get to your REI and y'all are talking about, hey, IVF, for whatever reason, is the right direction for for me and my partner, if there is one, um, what are some of the tests that our listeners might experience going into an IVF process, including things that might surprise them? Well, typically we want to do infectious disease testing. And one time I even had a primary care doctor call me and go, I don't understand why you're all ordering all these tests. Why does she need a test for, you know, hepatitis? And and so, A, number one, it, we want to make sure you're healthy. We want to make sure your partner's healthy. Um, and we also want to make sure that the embryos we create are healthy. And if either one of you had some exposure to something like hepatitis, we would have to physically keep those in a different container away from other embryos. 
So infectious disease testing, typical ones, HIV, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, those are the, the big ones. For some of the other things that we do, we'll do other things like something called cytomegalovirus or CMV. We'll also do something called HTLV1 and 2. And again, we don't do that for, at least in our practice, we don't do it for the run-of-the-mill patients that are doing IVF. But basically, infectious disease testing are primarily we want to do. We also test for HIV and syphilis. Do you guys yeah. as well? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. HIV and syphilis. Yeah, oh, that's right. Yeah. Of course, we also want to do like AMH and those sorts of things. And then some other things that we want to do, like tubal testing for women and sperm testing for men. So why is tubal testing for women important in an IVF process that we're bypassing the tubes? So if there's some tubal pathology, particularly in the form of a hydrocelpinx or a fluid-filled tube that is dilated and looks like a fat little sausage instead of a skinny spaghetti noodle, we want to know about that because there's some data, and this is from quite a while ago now, but show that the success rates with IVF are lower when you have those tubes present um, if they're pathologic. And so a lot of times we'll check those tests to see, is there any sign of hydrocelpanx because we want to know, do we need to go in and take that out? Um, even if you are doing even IVF, even if we are not planning on actively using the structure of those tubes, we mm-hmm. don't want them to cause a problem either. Mm-hmm. And just one corollary to that too. I just talked to a couple a couple of days ago about this and they're like, well, why do you need to, what, what's wrong with the tube? What's the problem? And we don't really know for sure, but we think that the fluid that collects in the tube can either flush the embryo out or just bathe the embryo in some non-nutrient media that may prevent it from implanting well. But there's the data is definitely there and it's been there for about 20 years that you really need to take the tube out. What type of testing do you do on the uterus? So we typically do saline ultrasound is the first part of the testing, and that's putting a little bit of salt water inside the uterus and then doing a vaginal ultrasound. And the purpose of that is when you look at just a plain old ultrasound, no water, no nothing else, it looks like the side of a peanut butter sandwich. So you can see, you know, bread on either side would be the muscle. The interior lining is going to be the lining of the uterus. Now, you can't tell if that peanut butter has nuts or no nuts. And we are looking for pure creamy peanut butter here. So when you I like that the- one, Carrie, I'm going to use that for sure next week. Nuts or no somebody nuts. for sure. <laughs> nuts or no nuts. Taking in only the the non innuendo form. This is this is true peanuts. So what we do when we put that saline in, it's kind of like pulling the two pieces of bread apart. Because once you pull them apart, you can actually see nuts or no nuts. And in this case, the nuts would be polyps, fibroids, scar tissue, anything in there that's going to interfere with the ability of a pregnancy to implant and grow appropriately. So that's usually the first half of testing that we do. More and more frequently now, we're doing a hysteroscopy. Oftentimes, it's a diagnostic hysteroscopy where um, we, at least in our office, and my guess is Abby and Susan will be somewhat different in this, but on pretty much everybody I can, I want to take a look inside. And we give you some medication to relax you. You're still awake. It's kind of like a longer glorified pap smear. Go in with a very flexible camera and take a look around because there are things that can't be picked up from the saline ultrasound. And so that helps us to get right out the door with, is there endometritis? Is there any subtle changes? Things like that, that we want to see. So if it was up to me, I would do that on absolutely everybody. Um, In reality, I, I do it on a much smaller subset. Is there any testing we do to see how easy or how hard it is to get an embryo into the uterus? Is every uterus the same? Every uterus is not the same. The first three inches can be the hardest three inches to get anything through for some patients. And you would think it's just a straight shot. It's usually most people that have not had a baby before, they're 
the depth of their cavity is about seven centimeters. So not seven inches, but seven centimeters. And usually the first, you know, few centimeters are the tricky part. The the cervix is like a narrow tunnel. And then once the tunnel opens up inside the uterine cavity, you can see a lot better and it's easier to to get the catheter in. But those first that first little bit can be really tricky. And so a lot of times we'll bring patients in and we'll do what we call a trial transfer or a mock transfer, where we basically just practice. We're just trying to figure out the twists and turns in the cervix. And generally I say, if there's just one turn, usually it's not that difficult to get in. If there's more than one turn, that can be really tricky. Unfortunately, in our field, we don't have drivable catheters or catheters where we can, you know, even if we know that your cervix goes down to the left and then over to the right, even though we know that we can't tell the catheter to do that. And so we just have to kind of figure out a pattern and figure out how to do the twist and turns. Sometimes in our office, I doubt Carrie and Susan do this, but if we know it's going to be really tricky transfer, we'll literally a couple of days before the transfer, we'll put a stitch in the cervical canal. And of course, ahead of time, sometimes we'll dilate the cervix or try and open it up to make it easier. But if it's really more the twist and the turns that are the problem, we'll bring the patient in, we'll numb up the, the top of the cervix, just like a little area right at the top, just tiny spot. We'll take a stitch, just like we're going to put a stitch in your skin. With suture, we tie it down and then we tuck those strings up in the vagina. And then when our patient comes in the next day or so for their embryo transfer, we'll basically use those that stitch to try and manipulate the uterus. And the advantage is you sort of suffered the discomfort a day or two ago. And then when we just kind of gently pull on your cervix or tug on it, it generally doesn't hurt that much. And it really can help our, our ability to get the catheter in the right spot. And then once the transfer is over, we just snip the little catheter, take it out, and it's easy. We will often do in, in preparation like that, like Abby said, is when you know you've got a rough cervix coming up, we'll do that practice transfer. Kind of the default in our office is if we can get in to do your tube and your uterine testing without drama, we know that the transfer catheter will pass fairly mm-hmm. easily because it's it's an easier catheter to pass, frankly, than either the other testing catheters. Oftentimes, if I know I've got a tough cervix, I will dilate them at baseline. So when they come in on their period, I will just pass the dilators through really gently just to open it up a little bit so that I can get in more easily. And for the really tough ones, we'll, we'll put them to sleep in order to do that, to work our way through, usually under ultrasound guidance to know A, what the path is and B, to make it easier when we need to. And these things that we're talking about, a lot of these things are exceptions, but they're all little tricks we have in our bag to mm-hmm. make sure we know how to get a little embryo back into the uterus. So we've talked just briefly about testing the eggs, quantity, quality, those types of things. If somebody's had their tubes tied, do we need to worry about the sperm? The so, sperm? Always. I mean, it's <laughs> of 50% course. of the equation. It takes two to tango. I'm like, it what's, does. what am I missing here? <laughs> It does. It does. Because I have a lot of people who, you know, if they've had a tubal ligation, they're like, well, I don't necessarily need to get my sperm checked because we know the problem is with her tubes. The important things thing is happen. there's things happen. And there, there are things that even, even if a guy's had children before, things can change. And we, we see it all the time. Age, health issues, exposures, different things can, can make the sperm not quite as wonderful as they used to be medications like uh, something called testosterone. Some I've had oh. it more than more than one patient whose husband was taking testosterone and his wife didn't know about it. 
he didn't know that it was a problem, you know, would do the sperm count and find out that he didn't have any sperm. So that's always important. And, and I usually say, you know, even if a guy, you know, and his wife have had or partner or whatever, have had children before, or he's had other children, I would say, well, you know, we don't like surprises. You know, you're spending a lot of time and money to do this. And we, we don't like surprises and you don't either. We want to make sure when we get the eggs there in our lab that we also have good sperm. So I think there's almost no circumstance that, in which I wouldn't tell somebody you probably probably need to do a sperm count ahead of time. Yeah. The um, the other thing to consider there is that if you do have sperm problems, we want to know about it because every REI has the story of, oh yeah, I thought I knew exactly what was going on. This is usually an early in their career story. I thought I knew exactly <laughs> what was going on. They begged me because of financial reasons, because mm-hmm. of convenience, because of whatever, not to do XYZ test. And so I didn't do it. And then we got to usually IVF, usually the day of retrieval, to find whatever thing didn't work and no sperm is most common in Mm -hmm. in this particular scenario you know it it goes to the same thing of you do three or four IUIs then you run the tube test and find out they were blocked and those IUIs Mm -hmm. were never going to work or you think someone's got PCOS and so you don't run the egg testing and then all of a sudden they're menopausal not PCOS every every REI has one story that taught them that lesson very sharply and they never make that mistake again yeah, and I'll tell you back before we could freeze eggs really well, that was a real tragedy. If you went through an IVF cycle and the husband or partner had no sperm, the couple had paid for a whole retrieval and we couldn't freeze the eggs because we didn't have the technology to do it, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. And so at least now, worst case scenario, we can always freeze eggs and thaw them out later. But still, we all would prefer to do it in a fresh cycle and it's less expensive to do it that way. So again, we don't like surprises. Yeah. Another thing to know about sperm is if for some reason the male partner does not have much sperm in preparation for IVF, sometimes our embryologists would like them to collect and freeze sperm so that we have backup for the day of egg retrieval. Um, Just because sometimes collections may be not as successful as we would hope them to be. We always love fresh sperm. That's what we would prefer to use. But it's nice to have um, frozen on backup. Also, if your partner happens to have, you know, a job or some other commitment that may keep him from being there that specific day, then freezing sperm ahead of time can be a very valuable step in your process. Or if he just has stage fright. (laughs) He just can't collect. That's a problem, too. Yeah. Good deal. Good deal. Anything else that y'all can think about that we would need to mention kind of in preparation for going through IVF? Well, we don't, we're not the experts in the finances, but it wouldn't hurt to talk to your insurance provider and really kind of get some sense for what your coverage is. Um, Most fertility centers have um, several people in their business office that can help you out with that, but it really doesn't hurt to know on your, on the front end, because I will tell you in counseling patients, it's a lot easier to talk about IVF with all the bells and whistles and all the things that we would like to do and all the things that we think are important to do if we know you have coverage. Whereas if you don't have coverage, then we're like, well, maybe to save money, we can do this instead of that. Or So just be really nice on the front. And I think just give you peace of mind if you kind of know what your coverage is before you go in to see your your doctor. And the the other component of that is that the the kind of coverage makes a difference because there are some insurance programs that will say, IUI only, some that will say IUI and then IVF if it doesn't work, but you can't go straight to IVF unless there's a very clear clinical indication for it, like a block tube or very, very low sperm count. And there's also 
programs that will say you get X number of dollars, spend it however you want. When it's gone, it's gone. And so that oftentimes gives us a different approach as well as we're trying to figure out, okay, how do we maximize whatever you have to get you the family that you're trying to build? Another thing on the insurance side of it is also know that your clinic and your lab may not both be involved with the same insurance policies. If they're part of kind of two different institutions, just like it is for me and Carrie and Abby, those are kind of two different parts of the process. What happens in the lab will get funneled through insurance through them. What happens through the clinic happens through the clinical side, and they both may not have the same insurance contracts. That's a great point. Yeah, one other thing I was going to say too about diagnosis as well, if you've had a tubal ligation or if your partner's had a vasectomy, I've also had patients that have been told that their insurer is not going to pay for IVF because they chose to you know, have a tubal ligation or vasectomy. So that can make a difference as well. But there are more and more that are that are allowing coverage, even if you have that history. But that, right. that that is an important thing to know is if I do have that history, is my insurance one of those that says because I had voluntary sterilization, I don't get that benefit from my insurance? Good deal. Good deal. All right. All right. Well, thank you so much. This was a great conversation about kind of the preparation for IVF and to our audience, thanks so much for listening and be sure to tune in next week for more. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. So follow us, subscribe, and stay up to date on all things fertility. You can also visit fertilitydocsuncensored.com to submit a specific questions you have about infertility. All questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously for our Ask the Doc segment. So don't hold back. We want to know episode ideas. We want to know what you're thinking. So let us know. And as always, this podcast is intended for entertainment. It's not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right, guys, we'll talk with you later. Bye. 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 This podcast is also brought to you by Fertility Pharmacy of America. Fertility Pharmacy of America is a fertility-dedicated pharmacy that partners with physicians across the country in order to provide patients with a more personalized pharmacy experience. Pride ourselves on ensuring that every prescription is accurate, delivered in a timely manner, and most importantly, affordable for all patients. A team of trained pharmacists, technicians, and customer service representatives will be with you every step of the way, providing you with knowledge and exceptional quality care for all of your fertility medication needs. More than just a specialty pharmacy, they're a committed partner during your fertility journey. Fertility Pharmacy of America, making miracles happen every day. Please text or call us at 844-449-8767 and reference Fertility Docs Uncensored.